Today is uh, the day of Pentecost, and when I was an assistant minister on the northern beaches of Sydney, uh, at our early morning traditional service, I had an older brother in the Lord, one particular Pentecost Sunday, come up to me after the service and gave me a solid punch in the arm for failing to mention that it was Pentecost Sunday. I learned my lesson. I've mentioned Pentecost Sunday, every Pentecost Sunday since then, uh, because we thank God uh, that 50 days after the death and the resurrection of our Lord and Saviour, the Holy Spirit was sent down upon all of God's people and the Church of Christ was born. Uh, what a wonderful day to remember that. The songs that we've sung, um, the prayers that we're praying, uh, all reflect something of that reality of what we have because the Spirit is within us. Let me pray one more time, a tradition, traditional Anglican Pente Pentecost Sunday prayer. If you agree with this prayer, give me a big amen at the end. Almighty God, on this day, through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, you revealed the way of eternal life to every race and nation. Pour out this gift anew, that by the preaching of the gospel, your salvation may reach to the ends of the earth through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. And Lord, may your Holy Spirit right now illuminate this word we've just heard, giving us ears to hear and all those with hearts on fire said, amen. amen. That was a good amen. Well, 11 years ago, I happened to be in the heart of Sydney City for the official ticker tape parade after the 2012 London Olympics. The scene was set. It was a beautiful day. The sun was out. Thousands of sporting fans and city workers lined the streets ready to celebrate our Aussie heroes. As the parade made its way down George Street, let me be honest, I couldn't help but feel it was a little underwhelming. As the athletes filed past, I wasn't quite sure who they actually were. It was literally only a few weeks after the Olympics, but none of the people I was standing with actually knew the names of the athletes either. Now, I still took photos and posed for photos with medalists, but I was actually too embarrassed to ask who they actually were. I actually haven't washed my hand uh, since that day, 11 years ago, because of that precious signature that I received. Uh, not knowing exactly who they were didn't stop me from posting them on Instagram. Today, as we continue our teaching series, Servant King, uh, we land in Mark chapter 11. Now, it's a ticker tape parade of sorts for Jesus. Jesus, who has now been revealed as the Christ, the coming King. And what we have in this text is the entry of the King into the holy city. But perhaps it was, as it was read out, maybe there were even elements of it that felt a little bit underwhelming. You see these words? After Jesus' entry, it says in verse 11, And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple... And when he had a look around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. It feels like something is about to happen. And yet Jesus has a look around and then decides to leave Jerusalem, walk a couple of kilometres back to their accommodation in Bethany. Question, is this just an underwhelming ticker tape parade? Answer, this is far from an underwhelming moment. 
everything that takes place in this chapter, not just the servant king's entry into Jerusalem, but what he does and what he says once he's in Jerusalem is of the highest significance. You see, Jesus comes in fulfillment of the promises made about God's king in the Old Testament. And so I want you to notice three things from Mark 11 about the significance of Jesus' kingship. Now, just quickly before I give you the first one, a a footnote to begin with. Uh, Before giving a previous version of this talk, I actually listened to a sermon that was super helpful uh, from a pastor in Sydney named Philip Jensen that shaped my understanding of the text. Uh, As I read through my sermon and the previous one I gave, I couldn't find any direct quotes, I couldn't find any direct footnotes, and so I just want to acknowledge that up front. There may be, if those of you who have listened to the back catalogue of Philip Jensen, you might find some similarities. No deliberate whole ripping of quotes, and I don't think I've done that, but just wanted to say that up front. Uh, And most sermons are like that anyway. We've stolen them from somewhere, let's be honest. But hey, three things about Jesus' kingship. Who's ready for the first one? There we go. James on the sound desk. Thank you. Number one, the king's resolution. Number one, the king's resolution. Uh, and, And what you need to notice about Jesus' entry into Jerusalem are the deliberate, intentional, and resolute steps of Jesus. Now, it's already been revealed, remember back in Mark chapter 8, that Jesus is the Christ. He is the long-awaited Messiah King. And so here is the King entering into Jerusalem, the holy city, the religious and political centre of Israel. And so have a look at the king's resolution in chapter 11, uh, beginning at verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. Jesus knows what lies ahead of him. In just a matter of days, he will be crucified. Yet before that happens, he wants us to see clearly who he claims to be and the significance of what's about to happen. And so this request to the disciples here in uh, Mark 11 is an intentional throwback to Zechariah. uh, Chapter 9 in the Old Testament. Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your King is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is He, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The King will come on a young donkey. This King comes with righteousness in humility, bringing salvation. You see, Jesus is going to great lengths to see that he is identified with this king from Zechariah 9. He knows that he is the fulfillment of the promises made about him in the Old Testament prophets. And he wants others to know that too. And so the disciples, they do exactly what Jesus says. And it continues, verse 4. 
And they went out away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. Here comes the king, not on a war horse like other kings, but on the donkey, the foal of a donkey. Zechariah 9, if we read further in the context, also says that he comes as the prince of peace. He comes not to make war, but Jesus comes to make peace. Now, how do people respond to the coming of King Jesus? Look at verse 9. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest! Just like blind Bartimaeus in the chapter before this, where Jesus is called the son of David, these people are beginning to join the dots. Their response shows that they understand something of who this king actually is. This is the coming of the king promised to their forefather, the great King David. 2 Samuel 7, we read about these promises from God to David. And their words in verse 9 and verse 10 are likewise what I've just read out. They're straight from Psalm 119. Hosanna means save now. And they see in Jesus that this really is the king who comes to save. This is the saviour king. This really is the greatest son of their forefather, David. Jesus the king is resolute. He is deliberate in his steps and his actions to show that he is the fulfilment of all of God's promises. Look, if you're new to the Bible, we are so glad that you're here and you're gathering with us. And we think that every week is a good week to be part of Christ our refuge, as every week we work hard to understand the message of the Bible, this book that is God revealing himself to us. You know, one of the biggest lessons that I think you can have as you approach the Bible in understanding how the whole thing fits together, there's 66 books in the Bible, written over a roughly 2,000 year period, and yet, of those 66 books, there's kind of these two Testaments, the Old Testament, 39 books in the Old Testament, and the New Testament, the 27 books in the New Testament. And the big principle is you, the way that they fit together. You can't have one without the other. The Old Testament shows God's dealings in particular with the nation of Israel, but we're left hanging by the end of the Old Testament and we're waiting for someone to come. A king is promised who will come and lead the people in the way that they need to be led. And so if the Old Testament is full of promises in the New Testament, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, the letters written by uh, the Apostle Paul and others in the early church, the New Testament is full of fulfillment. Old Testament promises, New Testament fulfillment. fulfillment. And what we learn and what Jesus is even trying to show to us step by step on his way to that cross is that Jesus is the answer to all of the questions, all of the hopes and all of the expectations from the Old Testament. Three significant things about the king. In Mark chapter 11, number one is the king's resolution. Number two is the king's judgment. Number two, the king's judgment. 
King Jesus comes with a heavy word of judgment as he arrives in Jerusalem. This is all consistent with what God's chosen king would come to do. You see, the king's judgment continues this theme of fulfillment. Have a look at verse 11 again. We started there, but let's read it again. It says, And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Did you notice? Jesus doesn't just come to the city. Jesus has a specific target in mind. He comes to the temple. On that first night, he enters the temple. He makes observations. He has a look around. And then he heads back to Bethany for the night. This is important. The the judgment he's about to pronounce is not primarily, listen, a judgment upon all the people in Israel. In fact, Luke's account of the same story shows Jesus weeping for the people, longing for them to come back to God. In particular, the king's judgment is upon what's taking place in the temple. It's a judgment upon the corrupt religious practices and the corrupt religious leaders. And so what follows the next day are two events. And as you kind of look down in the text there, there is the story of Jesus cursing the fig tree from verse 12. And then uh, from verse 15 uh, to verse 19, we see sandwiched in the middle of that event is Jesus cleansing the temple. And then it comes back to the lessons from the withered fig tree. But both of these scenes are concerning the king's judgment. And so let's go to the first scene there with the fig tree. Look at verse 12. Verse 12, on the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat from you, fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Now they're hungry. Uh, they notice a drive through fig tree in the distance. Picture this. Yet when they arrive, there's no fruit. There's only leaves. And so Jesus pronounces judgment upon the tree. And the disciples are probably thinking, this is crazy. Look, Jesus, there's probably like a, there's a Macca's a bit further up the road. Let's get some hotcakes and syrup. We don't need the fig, the fig fruit. We can kind of get something from somewhere else. But Jesus is making a point. It's not just about being hungry. Have a look further down at the lesson beginning in verse 20. It says, as they passed by in the morning... They saw the fig tree withered away to its roots and Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. A day later, that fig tree is dead. Now, what's the point of this story? Well, it's what comes in between the cursing of the fig tree and the finding of it dead. What Jesus is doing is enacting a parable of what is taking place in verse 15 to verse 19. That fig tree has withered, has withered to its roots. Jesus is about to take an axe to the root of the tree in Jerusalem. That's why he's interested in the temple. Remember the night before, he's already cased out the situation. And so it continues. Look at the, this, this bit in the middle, verse 15. It says, And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. 
And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now, is Jesus unnecessarily angry? Maybe even a little hangry? Not at all. This is Jesus' measured response to what he saw the night before. Jesus, King Jesus, his anger is righteous and just. His actions are consistent with what has already been promised in the prophets in the Old Testament. We even have just read out, Jesus quotes two of them there in verse 17. Isaiah 56 said that the temple was supposed to be a place of prayer for the nations. And Jeremiah 7 said that the temple was corrupted and would become a den of robbers. You see, the religious establishment has failed time and time again. The temple was supposed to be a place where not just Jewish people, but people from all nations could come to pray. But they've set up a buy, swap and sell market in the court of the Gentiles. And so you can understand how it happened though, right? This was the beginning of Passover week. One ancient historian said that as many as 255,000 lambs were bought, sold and then sacrificed in the temple courts. Now, it makes sense. Pilgrims have travelled from great distances to come to the temple. Of course, it'd be easier to kind of buy when you arrive. But obviously, the religious workers are profiteering from this trade. So how do you think this outburst from Jesus in the temple goes down with the religious establishment who are profiting from this trade? Look at verse 18. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him uh, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. The religious leaders want him dead. By the end of the week, they'll have done just that. Jesus' judgment here is not just on the corrupt leadership. It's not just on the corrupt practices but even points to an end to the temple itself as the epicenter of religious life. Jesus will speak out all the more against the temple in the chapter to come. But what we have is also a signal from Jesus doing away with the whole sacrificial system. The whole need for the temple in Jerusalem is about to become obsolete. So here's here's what we've seen so far. Number one, we've seen the king's resolution. Number two, we've seen the king's judgment. And the third and final thing we see is the king's salvation. The king's salvation, this is good news. In the Old Testament, this is the same pattern in the Old Testament. God typically brings judgment and salvation at the same time. We see this all the way through the prophets. The God who judges those who continue in their idolatry, who continue in their hardness of heart, who continue in their rebellion against God. But God, at the same time, saves those who turn back to Him, who heed His call and come in repentance. Brothers and sisters, this is good news. Because the reality is we're all guilty of sin, not just the religious leaders in historical Israel. We've all sinned against God in thought, in word and in deed. We've all failed to love God as we ought. We've failed to love our neighbour as ourselves. And yet God, in His kindness, gave to Israel... The sacrificial system, a kind of a, a, a whole system by which anim, innocent animals 
had their blood shed as a way to provide atonement for sin. And through the sacrifice of Jesus, we actually see an end to the sacrificial system. The sacrificial system was pointing forward to the ultimate sacrifice that would come in the salvation won by Jesus. Jesus' sacrifice is a once and for all moment, making salvation possible for all people. Now, before we look at the final section of Mark 11, I want to take you back to Zechariah 14, a passage that speaks about the final judgment on the day of the Lord. In Zechariah 14, um, uh, I think the teaching of Zechariah 14 and the prophecies in Zechariah 14 are behind the actions of Jesus throughout this chapter. Uh, We've already seen the allusions from Zechariah 9, but Zechariah 14 uh, is a highly symbolic, apocalyptic literature. And so have a look at a few verses with me. I think they're on the screen if you wanted to jot them down and look them up later. Uh, Zechariah 14 verse 4 says, On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives. Remember that. That lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mountain uh, mount shall move northward and the other half southward. In the great battle at the end of the world, God comes to rescue his people in Jerusalem. He will split open the Mount of Olives so that people have a safe passage out of the besieged city and through the mountain. Verse 16, Zechariah 14, verse 16, Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths. You see, when the city is won, nations will flood back into Jerusalem, worshipping God in His temple. And then the final verse, verse 21, Zechariah 14, verse 21, And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all whose sacrifice may come and take of them, and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. And there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. There'll no longer be traitors in the temple of God. Jesus comes from the Mount of Olives. What does he see upon entering the temple? Traitors. So he goes home. He curses the fig tree. Israel is the fruitless fig tree. He cleanses the temple so that the nations, all people can worship there, that they too receive salvation. Now, after the cleansing of the temple, his disciples comment about the dead fig tree. And then Jesus responds with these incredible words of hope. Pick it up with me back in Mark 11, verse 22. It says, And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Jesus came consciously as the King of Israel, the ruler of the nations, the Prince of Peace, bringing the final judgment of Israel and the salvation of the nations. 
And so what's the connection then between the fig tree, between faith in God and moving mountains and prayer and forgiveness? Well, remember Zechariah 14. He's giving us a foretaste of the kingdom coming. You see, it's not primarily about moving mountains. It's not some principle about how to move the mountains in your life. It's about moving this mountain. Which mountain? Well, back in verse 1, the Mount of Olives. This mountain will be split apart and sent off by God on the day of judgment. Jesus is saying, do you want that now? Do you want the kingdom now? Do you want the day of judgment now? Do you want the day of salvation now? Ask for it. Pray for the kingdom to come. You want to be ready for that day? Forgive. Ready for the Lord to forgive you. Now is the moment for forgiveness. It's about to come upon you now at this moment through what's about to take place. You know, I'm not sure if you've heard these verses reflected on before and take it as an opportunity for prosperity preachers to kind of name it and claim it. You know, name it and it's yours. Name it and claim it. Green Lamborghini, mine. Bustling property portfolio, mine. It's got nothing to do with naming and claiming. It's asking for the kingdom of God to come. Jesus has already urged them to do this when he taught them to pray the Lord's Prayer. Here it is. The kingdom of God is coming because the king of the kingdom is present in the person and the work of Jesus. Jesus has done everything required of him. All that the Old Testament points to finds its fulfillment at this, ma- at this moment, in this man, on this, mount- mo- on this mountain. He's saying to pray for it now because now is the moment. Now Jesus will continue to resolutely walk from the temple through the city to the garden in the court up the hill and on the cross and it's at the cross that we see so beautifully the judgment and salvation of God come together the sinless savior servant king the spotless Lamb of God who does away with the sacrificial system. Jesus takes our judgment upon himself and we receive freely, not through any works we do, but we receive salvation in him. And so we can be certain on the final day of judgment that because of the day of judgment that took place at the cross, that because of the events of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, We can be certain on that final day. That day will not be a lame ticker tape parade. All glory, all praise, all joy to God and from God. On that day, we will be safe, secure and saved. You know, we talk about it every week, but our dream is to be a city of refuge within the city of Brisbane where many people have found refuge, security and hope in Christ. Friends, let's take hold of all that Christ offers. The refuge, the security, the hope. Let's take hold of it now and be ready for that day of judgment and salvation. And let us know that the the city around us that ultimately is in rebellion against God too, needs to know the salvation that Jesus has won. 
the hope that Jesus gives, the refuge that Jesus offers. You know, the call in Mark's gospel is to center your life on Him, on Christ. The temple was the center of the religion, and yet Jesus is the temple. He is now the center, not only of religion, but of our whole lives. Uh, the late Tim Keller, who died a week ago, the, the founder of a church planting network that we're part of called City to City all around the world, he said this in reflecting on Mark 11. He pleads with his listeners, please don't try to keep Jesus on the periphery of your life. He cannot remain there. Give yourself to him. Center your entire life on him and let his power produce his character in you. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the Lord Jesus. And Father, we thank you so much that he has come. And Father, we thank you that Jesus knew who he was. We knew, he knew that he came in fulfillment of all of your promises. Father, thank you that he came resolute to bring judgment and to bring salvation. We thank you for his grace to us. We thank you for his offer of forgiveness to us. And Father, we thank you that he has done away with the need for the sacrifice of animal after animal because his sacrifice is once and for all. Father, we thank you that as we look back to the cross, we can see the day of judgment and we can see the day of salvation. And Father, as we look forward, we know we can be confident on the last day when Christ will return. On the day of judgment, we stand secure. We stand safe. We stand saved because of trusting in Christ. Lord, on this Pentecost Sunday, would your Holy Spirit continue to impress this word upon us as we're sent out from this place? Would your Holy Spirit enable us to center our lives on him? That he would be at the very epicenter of who we are, of our identity, of our purpose, of our vocation, of our relationships. That, that Jesus indeed would be our king, would be our saviour that we would trust in him, that we would hope in him, and that many others would find that refuge and security and hope that he offers here in this city through our witness. And it's in the precious name of Jesus that we all pray. Amen.